there's, um, there's a monologue at the beginning of Terrence Malick's film, The Tree of Life, uh, that has always stayed with me. Uh, the movie, if, if you haven't seen it, it, it came out a number of years ago, starred Brad Pitt. It was up for all kinds of different awards. Um, starts with this voiceover of a mother who has, who has just lost a son. And this is what the monologue says. There are two ways through life, the way of nature and the way of grace. You have to choose which one you'll follow. Grace doesn't try to please itself, accepts being slighted, forgotten, disliked, accepts insults and injuries. Nature only wants to please itself, gets others to please it too, likes to lord it over them, to have its own way. It finds reasons to be unhappy when all the world is shining around it, when love is smiling through all things. No one who loves the way of grace ever comes to a bad end. When you examine your life, is it characterized by the way of nature or by the way of grace? Which sounds more appealing to you? To, uh, to be slighted and forgotten or to get your own way? Which would your children or your coworker or your spouse or your cellmate say you're living by? Christianity is a calling away from the way of nature to the way of grace. We're in a, a two-year teaching plan here, uh, which some of you maybe remember and, and maybe you've forgotten, but, but, but we are. We're in a two-year two teaching plan where we've really been trying to look at what it means for us to be the church. And we've decided to describe the church as being people. The church is people devoted to God in community on mission for God's glory. And so last spring, we spent some time looking at what it means for us to be people who are devoted to God. And then this past fall, we spent time kind of delving into what it really means to be in community. And so today we start a season of looking at what it means for us to be on mission. So if Christianity is a shift away from the way of nature into the way of grace, our mission is to invite as many people into this way as we can. Hebrews 12, 15 says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. So if that's our mission, how do we do it? How do we accomplish that? Well, it has to start with us. In fact, in Hebrews, it also says in Hebrews 13, 9, it is good that the heart be established by grace. So is your heart established by grace? In order for us to be on mission, in order for us to fulfill our mission, to see to it that no one misses the grace of God, our heart has to be established by grace, which means we have to have accepted it for ourselves. And the way we know we've accepted it is by how we give it away. Because to accept grace is to vow to give it away. So for the next three weeks, we're gonna look at probably one of Jesus's most famous parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we're gonna examine how in this parable we see the way of grace and we see what it is that we're called to be, who we're called to be, what we're called to do. 
Now, I know most of us know this story very well. Even if we didn't grow up in church, even if we never opened a Bible, we know that if you stop and help a stranger on the side of the road, you're being a good Samaritan. So I know that this is like a very familiar story, but I want to encourage you, even if you've heard this story a hundred times or more, even if you think there is nothing new that I can get from hearing this story, I want to encourage all of us to approach this uh, with an openness and, and a hope that we might be surprised by this story. In fact, my encouragement to all of us is to spend this next week reading this story every day. It just doesn't take long. It's, it's in Luke 10. It's only a few verses. Read this story every day. Maybe think about it a little bit, meditate on it, pray through it, but just see what happens as we sit in this story for a week. Parables are simple stories that are meant to change how the listener thinks and acts. So let's, let's try it. Let's, let's see what happens when we sit in this story and see what it does to us. Now, over the next couple of weeks, we're gonna look at the context for the story. We're gonna look at the question that was asked of Jesus that prompted him to make up the story. We're gonna try to examine why that question was asked and, and why this parable is the right answer to the question. We're also gonna look at how this parable practically instructs us in our mission, provides us what we're called to. But today, I just want us to hear the story. Today, we're just going to listen to the story. And my hope is that we will hear the story in the way those who heard Jesus tell it, heard it. So a man was on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now this, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho was not an easy path. In fact, it was, it was pretty treacherous. It was through cannons, it was mountainous, and the, the path literally went down on a pretty steep incline from Jerusalem to Jericho. I wanna show you, look right here, all right. So there you go, you've got Jerusalem up there, kind of at the top. Jerusalem is 3,000 miles above sea level, and then Jericho is actually about 300 miles below sea level. And so uh, the, the distance between the two of them is 14 miles. So as you can imagine, this pathway is a pretty steep decline. It, it wouldn't have been an easy walk to make. And through it, you can see there's, there's kind of valleys and, and, and up and down, and you see the canyon right there. Um, canyon, not canyon, canyon right there. Um, and, and along this path, there were also um, caves. So it was real easy for, for robbers to hide in these caves and then be able to attack people. And then it was real easy for them to hide and escape uh, because of just how, uh, how, how uh, hidden parts of this path were. One of the earliest church fathers, uh, Jerome, actually uh, titled this path the Bloody Way. It was known to be a very dangerous road. So back to the story. Okay, I, I got a little sidetracked there. Okay, so we got a man and he's on his way down from Je Jerusalem to Jericho when he falls in among some robbers who beat him and strip him and leave him half dead on the side of the road. So what do we know about this man? We don't know much. We don't know much about him. We know uh, that he was a Jew um, in fact, uh, those who are hearing the story would have assumed that this man was Jewish. And if, if, if Jesus intended for him to be something else, he would have specified that. So we know that he was a Jewish man, but we don't know what kind of life he'd lived. We don't know if he had, had been a, a good Jew or a bad Jew. We don't know if, if he had obeyed the law. We don't know if he was a good person. 
I mean, for all we know, he's getting what he deserved. Maybe he was a tax collector who, who robbed from people openly. Or, or maybe he was a miser who, who just thought about himself. Or maybe he was just a hardworking dad who was trying to get home to his kids, and this is a travesty. But it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter what kind of life he lived, whether he was good or bad. You and I were never secure from trouble. Uh, Car accidents, cancer, muggings, none of that discriminates. But what we do know is that there was nothing he could do to help himself. He was left for dead. A couple weeks ago, um, I, uh, m- to get to the front door of my house, you actually have to walk down some stairs. And, uh, and it had been raining and I was walking down the steps and, and I tripped and I fell pretty hard on my back and kind of hit the middle of my back on one of the stairs. And, um, and for at least a good 30 seconds or so, I could not breathe. I could not breathe at all. And then once I started to get a little bit of breath, I tried to talk and I couldn't talk. It was just... <sighs> Like I could, I, nothing could come out and, and Kelly was gone and I was home uh, alone with the kids and the kids were all inside. And, and for a moment I was laying on the steps and I was in such incredible pain and I wasn't quite sure like if I was going to recover. And I had this thought like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna die out here because I can't call to my kids to help me. And then my kids are gonna find me dead outside and like, that's gonna be traumatic. I mean, it was this, it was this awful feeling to, to, to need help but to not be able to ask for help. Y'all, I'm okay, right? I'm, I'm here, I'm alive. Uh, but, but this man, he was, he was nearly dead. He wasn't dead, he was nearly dead. And so he knew he needed help, but there was, there was nothing he could do to help himself. Now, do you ever feel like that? Maybe not physically, but do you ever feel emotionally or spiritually like there's just nothing you can do to help yourself? I imagine we all feel like that at times. We, we, we realize that, that whatever's happening to us or whatever we're choosing to do is actually killing us, but we, we don't see a way out. And, and because we don't know who to ask for help and we know we can't help ourselves, we just carry it in silence. So maybe we know a little bit more about this man than we thought. So the man was laying there left for dead. And a priest comes by. Now, when the hearers of this story heard that a priest had come by on that same road, they would have been excited. They would have been like, yay, hero, finally, someone has come and the guy's gonna be okay and he's gonna be rescued. It would have been the same as like hearing Superman had come on the scene. But the man looked, the priest looked at the man on the side of the road and passed by on the other side. Now, this would have been utterly shocking to the people who were listening to the story. How could this happen? A priest, of, a priest was avoiding showing mercy. Showing mercy is one of the most basic and imperative requirements of God's law. And the priest would have known this. Last week, Eddie Morton had us look at uh, Micah 6.8, which says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what the Lord requires, to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God, to love mercy. God's law required his people to love mercy. In fact, the law required them to to love mercy, to show mercy to strangers. 
In Leviticus 19.34, it says, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Not only that, God's law required mercy for your enemy. Exodus 23, four and five. If you come across your enemy's donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure to help with it. So if God's law required mercy for the stranger and mercy for the enemy, then of course God's law required mercy for the fellow Jew. And this priest had just come from temple. The temple was in Jerusalem and it was customary for, for priests to go and go to the temple in Jerusalem and work for about a month, doing all the priestly duties of sacrifices and, 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 um, and prayers and teachings. And so this man had, had just been serving in the temple for a month and he comes walking by and, uh, and he just passes by. This man had been near God yet he was not like him. So you and I, we, we could come here every week. We could be near God. We could listen and maybe even experience the way of grace, but leave here the way of nature. Because that's what this priest did. This priest missed it. And maybe he had some good reasoning. Charles Spurgeon once said, I never knew a man refuse help to the poor who failed to give at least one admirable excuse. Maybe this priest had, had been away from his wife and children for a month working in the temple. He lived in Jericho. So he just, he wanted to get back to them. He was exhausted. He had already worked for God for a month and he just needed a break. It's someone else's turn to do God's work. I mean, because of course he didn't want to burn out. He needs his break. He needs his rest. And not just that, maybe his family would be worried about him. They, they were expecting him home. And, and if he didn't get home, then they would be experiencing anxiety knowing he was on this dangerous road. So, so of course, I don't want to do that to my family. And again, it was a dangerous road. And so to help this man, and maybe, maybe it would put him in danger. Maybe those robbers were still around. Or, or, or maybe even worse, this man was acting as a decoy to kind of trick him into helping so that he can be robbed and attacked. No, the best thing that he could do for this man would be to not stop and not help him. Now, when Charles Spurgeon preached on this uh, parable, he, he started kind of giving a list of, of different excuses that the priest could have come up with. And he noticed the congregation kind of smiling and snickering at, at some of the excuses that he came up with. Um, and so then he turned it on them. And he, you know, he could tell that they thought some of the things he was saying were absurd. And so he looked at them and he, he challenged them to kind of face the abs absurdity of their reasons for not showing mercy. And I want to read to you what he said to his congregation. He said, I shall leave you to make all the excuses you like about not helping the poor and aiding the hospitals. And when you have made them, they will be as good as those which I have set before you. You have smiled over what the priest might have said, but if you make any excuses for yourselves, whenever real need comes before you and you are able to relieve it, you need not smile over your excuses. The devil will do that. You had better cry over them. 
For there is the gravest reason for lamenting that your heart is hard toward your fellow creatures when they are sick and perhaps even sick unto death. Preacher knew how to throw some shade, y'all. <laughs> but we can't, I don't want us to dismiss this. I mean, I, I kind of wish I could say that to us, but, but I'm gonna let him be the bad guy. But, but, but we can't walk away from that. Think about it. Who, who in your life right now is by the wayside that you've, been looking away from? Who is it in your life right now that needs your time or your money, your care, your, your, your attention? Who do, who, who's by the wayside in your life? Do you have an excuse for not helping? And does that excuse even matter? One of the interesting things about the priest coming upon this man is in the original Greek, it says, by coincidence, a priest happened to be going down this road. Now, when the original hearers of the story heard that, uh, the, the by a coincidence would have brought to mind in, in their minds a providential action. So essentially, it was saying that by divine providence, this priest stumbled upon this man. And really, who better to have found this man than a man who had just been near God? It's as if God is saying, okay, I'm allowing you now to practice what you've been preaching this last month. And he missed it. Has God brought you to a place to practice what you preach, but you keep avoiding it? Now, all right, I, I hear the codependence in the room, like getting, like you're about to jump out of your skin. I know this is the worst nightmare of a sermon for a codependent. And I wish I could, I could ease and relieve the tension for you, but I can't because Jesus doesn't. So instead of trying to relieve the tension, what is this story inviting us into? Remember, a parable, a parable is a simple story meant to change how the listener thinks and acts. So if you struggle with codependency, my encouragement to you is to really jump into this week of, of reading this parable and pray through it and say, God, I, I know that there's something unhealthy about codependency, but I know that there's something very important about what you're trying to teach me in this story. So the priest walks by. So then a Levite also happens to be going along the same road. And when he sees the man, he walks by on the other side. Now, a Levite was an assistant to the priest. Uh, the tribe of Levi is one of the 12 original tribes of Israel. And, and the Levites were set apart to do um, the, the duties of the temple. They, they, were, they were to be the ultimate assistant to those who were doing the priestly role. And so he, this Levite had spent the month also serving in the temple. This just goes to show you, even when he was near God, even when he was near supposedly a man of God, it still didn't make him into a person who looked like God. He also misses the opportunity to practice the religion he is so devoted to. I imagine for Jesus' sake, uh, he just gives us two examples, but he really could have probably given us 12, 12 or maybe 12 dozen uh, examples of people who would pass by. But then he says a Samaritan was coming that way. 
Now, to the original hearers, they would have been like, oh, man, Jesus, come on, why you got to kick a guy when he's already down? They would have just immediately assumed something bad is about to happen. It's kind of like whenever Professor Snape appears in a Harry Potter book, you, you think, all right, something bad's about to happen. But then it turns out that we were wrong about him all along, right? That, that's a little bit what Jesus does here with the Samaritan. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on the man. Now, I've been, I've been racking my brain all week to try to think of a, of a good context in which to put this, this uh, how shocking this would be. Because this, be, this would be extremely shocking to the hearers. And I couldn't really come up with a great one. But, but the Jews hated the Samaritans. The Jews thought the Samaritans were the worst type of, of human beings. Because you see, the Samaritans were a Jewish subculture. They had intermarried with the Assyrians. And if you're here for the Advent series, uh, where we looked at the prophecy of Isaiah, where Isaiah promised the baby, he promised Jesus, who would, who would grow into to be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Uh, we said that that prophecy came because the Israelites were feeling hopeless and in a completely dark place because the Assyrian army was threatening them, because they were feeling under attack. And so the Sumerians are people who are made up of both Jews and the people who have been attacking God's people for hundreds of years. So they hated them for that. Not only that, these Samaritans had taken the, the scriptures, the Old Testament at the time, and just picked and choose what parts of it they were going to adhere to, what parts of it they liked. And, and not only that, they, they set up their own temple, their own place of worship, any good Jew knew that you had to go to Jerusalem to worship in that temple, but they, sent up, they set up their own temple. And so the Jews saw Samaritans as these half-breed heretics. I want to show you a map. We've looked at this map a few times uh, throughout the years because uh, this is the region where Jesus' ministry took place. And it's not a very big region. Um, but up at the top, you see Galilee, and then at the bottom, you see Judea. And those are the two primary regions for, for the Jewish people. And then in between them is, the, is Samaria, where, where Samaritans live. Now, if you were a Jew living up in the north, you hated Samaritans so much that instead of taking a direct path down to Jerusalem, you would actually go and you'd cross the Jordan River, you'd go through the Decapolis, which was, a, which was a, a pagan region, which they hated them too, but less than the Samaritans. And you'd make your way all the way down to Jericho, and then you'd cross back over and go to Jerusalem. You didn't want to touch a Samaritan. You wouldn't eat after a Samaritan. You absolutely hated a Samaritan. And so this was a huge deal when Jesus said a Samaritan came and showed pity. And by choosing a Samaritan, Jesus proves that he isn't scared of people who get religion or God wrong. I want to say that again. By choosing a Samaritan, Jesus is proving that he isn't scared of people who get religion or God wrong. Now, he clearly teaches when he's living on the earth in the, in the four gospels and, and throughout all of scripture, it really teaches that Jesus is the only way, that he is the way. But what astounds me about Jesus is that you don't, uh, you don't get a sense from him that people who don't get it or who miss it are a threat to him. And instead, we see Jesus continuing to seek them. We see Jesus continuing to invite them. And we see Jesus even choosing to use them as the hero in his story. What if Christians weren't threatened by people who don't agree with us? What if we weren't threatened uh, by people who, who, who get it wrong in our, in our 
estimation? What if we weren't scared of, of people who maybe even think we were crazy? But what if, like Jesus, we continued to invite them and to seek them and, and even celebrate them when what they've done is good or heroic? How often have we as Christians minimized good work done by others simply because they didn't believe what we believed? With Jesus choosing a Samaritan, he shows us that he is not threatened by those who get religion or God wrong. So the Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him in an inn to an inn to take care of him. Now, not only was it dangerous for the Samaritan to stop and assist this man on the side of the road, but to, to walk him into Jewish territory, uh, to, to put him up in an inn was extremely risky. In fact, one commentator talked about the risk the Samaritan took uh, being like that of an Amer uh, the American cultural equivalent to that would be a Plains Indian in 1875 walking into Dodge City with a scalped cowboy on his horse, checking into a room over the local saloon and staying the night to take care of him. It was, it was a, a good assumption that when he showed up at the end, the people at the end would have thought he did this to the man. And in fact, this man's family could seek vengeance against him. See, he helped this man at great risk to himself. But what I found myself kind of stuck on in, in what the Samaritan did was in that little phrase, and he took care of him. Because when the Samaritan showed up at the end, he didn't just say, okay, I got you this far. Now I'll, I'll let your people take care of you. I, 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 my, my hands are clean, I, I, I helped, and now I walk away. No, it said he stayed the night with him and he took care of him. This week, my, uh, my baby, uh, Huck, who's, uh, who's almost three months, uh, he's been sick for the first time and he has this horrible cough and, um, and, and, and he's not sleeping at night. I mean, he's just, he's coughing. It's really hard for him to breathe. And, and I found myself, even in those brief moments where he does actually fall asleep, I can't sleep because I want to constantly check to make sure he's still breathing. You know, put my hand over his mouth. Like, you know, like I, I'm constantly uh, just worried about him. That's what the Samaritan did. That's what the Samaritan did for the stranger. He stayed up with him all night taking care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, which was approximately two days' wages, uh, which would have been more than enough money to cover this man's expenses at the end for at least a week. And he gave them to the innkeeper, and he said, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So what made the difference between the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan? The Samaritan was willing to make an exchange. Grace always involves an exchange. Every act of mercy involves a substitution. As you see, this, the Samaritan substituted his time and his money so that the, the man by the wayside, the victim, could receive health and safety and life. But in turn, what happens when you help someone who's, who's filthy and covered in mud and, and beaten up and bloodied? you get filthy and bloody too. That's the way of grace. The priest and the Levite, even though they were near God, chose the way of nature. And even if they had good excuses, they still chose to put themselves first. But the way of grace is the heart of the gospel. 
See, Jesus gives us a picture of a very generous hearted man from Samaria. But he's really pointing to a picture of the most generous man from Nazareth. If we think the Samaritan is good, how much more should we think of Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus has done so much better than the good Samaritan because our situation was so much worse. The man by the wayside got there by no fault of his own. Wrong time, wrong place. And he was left there half dead. But you and I, we are completely dead in our sin. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. The thieves that have stripped us are our own sins. The wounds that we bear are inflicted by our own suicidal hands. And, and, and our adversity is not as a, as a racist Jew against a Samaritan, but as, as people who are enemies of God. Going back to Ephesians 2 and verse 3, it says, all of us have lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 5.10 that we were enemies of God. This poor man by the wayside did not turn away this help from the Samaritan, but yet how many times have we turned away and refused God? How many times have we just said, you know what, I'm done. I'm gonna take care of it myself. How many times have we blamed God? How many times have we, have we said God lacks mercy and grace because my circumstances are the way they are? This Samaritan took pity on this man because the Samaritan was a man because he knew what it was like to be a man. But Jesus, he was God infinitely above us, yet he chose to become one of us. The Samaritan came to the man by the wayside because he was going about his business. But being led there, he saw a man who needed help and he helped him. But when Jesus came, his only business was in saving us. It wasn't a, he happened upon us needing saving. No, he came for the sole purpose. His business was to save us. He journeyed by way of a manger in Bethlehem down to the place of our sin and misery because grace always involves an exchange. And when he got here, where we had fallen among the robbers, he didn't just risk being attacked. He was attacked. And he didn't just walk the path known as the bloody way. He became the bloody way. He was beaten and wounded and stripped naked and didn't, wasn't just left to die. He actually died. Jesus Christ died the death that you and I deserve on the cross. He was laid in the grave. He was slain for our sin in our place. Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds, we are healed. He came because grace always involves an exchange. Jesus ends this story with these words by the Samaritan. 
The Samaritan looks at the innkeeper and he says, if this man incurs any more debt, charge it to me, not him. Well, on the cross, Jesus says to the one who required of us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly, he said, charge their failure to me, not them. That's the way of grace. No one comes to a bad end who loves the way of grace. So now let's see to it that nobody misses the grace of God. Let's pray. Father God, I just ask that you would use this story that you told 2,000 years ago to change the way we think and act. That this story would help establish each of our hearts by grace so that we can go out and be people who act justly and who love mercy and who walk humbly. Father, I thank you uh, that it is true um, that, that you, you are the ultimate good Samaritan. That you came to save us. And Father, if there's anyone in here who doesn't know that, who, who's never really understood the fact that that's who you are and that's what you did, uh, Father, I pray that your spirit would speak directly to their hearts. And Father, for those of us who have known that for a long time, uh, make our hearts not hard to the gospel. Make our hearts not hard uh, to the need and the suffering we see around us. Make us people of grace who want to give grace and mercy wherever we can. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.